Hey friends, joining us online, the first thing that I wanna say is that we got new digs. We have a studio that Matt created for us, and so we're gonna be shooting most of our video up there, and today is the trial run, so I hope you enjoy the new look. One of the greatest business stories I know came out of a historic company called Alcoa, the Aluminum Company of America. And years ago, they brought in a guy named Paul O'Neill, who eventually went on to become Secretary of the Treasury. But they brought him in to be the CEO of Alcoa to turn the company around. Because it had gotten on hard times, they were having all sorts of challenges, and they thought, Paul O'Neill is fresh blood, he will have a new perspective, we're gonna bring him in. So right after he becomes CEO, they trot him down to Wall Street, and they rent a hotel ballroom and they pack it with investors and they pack it with analysts and all sorts of Wall Street people. And they're gathered there to hear Paul O'Neill give what they think will be the typical CEO speech. We're gonna turn this company around. We're gonna um, reduce overhead. We're gonna improve profits. We're gonna raise the stock price. But instead, Paul O'Neill says, I wanna talk to you about worker safety. And people who were in the room said, you could just feel the energy disappear. Worker safety? And so a bunch of people tried to ask more typical questions about finances and reducing overhead, that kind of stuff. And Paul O'Neill wasn't having any, any of it. He's like, I wanna to talk to you about worker safety. I intend to make Alcoa the safest place in America. And when his initial remarks were finished, and people left the room, there was a whole lot of people who called their clients and said, I'd sell Alcoa. But O'Neill's brilliance was he was trying to motivate people. Now salaries are important, absolutely, but most people are looking for a good place to work. And so his speech talking about safety sent a message to his employees that shareholder returns weren't his top priority, his employees were. And so his fight for worker safety gradually changed the systems and the culture of the company. Because if you're gonna prioritize worker safety, that means that you have to study the production process. And that means that you have to make improvements and so that the plant will run more efficiently over time. And since people had to respond to accidents, it meant that there was a lot of communication that was going on and a lot of new ideas were shared. And so not only was safety improved, but eventually the executives began sharing other data and other ideas came and the company got better and better. And because some of you are bottom line people, during the 14 years that Paul O'Neill was the CEO at Alcoa, the company's market value increased from $3 billion to $27.33 billion, while the net income increased from $200 million to $1.484 billion. Now, I'm not a finance guy, but I'm pretty sure those are good results. And he produced those results because he realized what was most important. And figuring out what is most important matters. It matters in a business, it matters in a family, it matters in marriage, it matters in your own individual life, and it matters as a follower of Jesus. So we're gonna talk about figuring out what's most important. And our scripture this morning is out of Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. 
She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, maybe for you, this is a new story. You haven't heard it before. But lots of people have probably heard this story a million times. And the story basically divides the crowd on whether you feel like you're more like Martha or you feel you're more like Mary. Now, I'm a systems and logistics guy. And I think Martha gets the short end of the stick in the story here. She obviously understands what needs to be done. She's taking responsibility for it because typically nobody else will. And Mary, very frustratingly, is clueless and not helpful at all. Now, others of you are more, are more like Mary or wrong. You're like, hey, Jesus is here. Martha, would you just sit down and quit fussing around? Put out some cheese and crackers and call it good. Others of you might look at this and be tempted to make this your life verse because Jesus basically says, don't do anything, just sit there. And you're like, finally, Jesus recognizes my spiritual gift. Just kidding. Okay, not. But really, with this text, and I've listened to a bunch of sermons on this this week, we could be done now. The moral of the story is sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him. But there's so much more than that. And actually, Brendan has allotted me some more time, so I'm gonna give you your money's worth. What all is going on in the story? Let's take a look at individual component pieces. It says, as Jesus and his disciples were on the way. It's a small note, but it's worth mentioning. The story is moving, and so is Jesus. And movement is a part of the story. They're going somewhere, and so is the storyline. As opposed to like the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus basically is sitting there for three to five hours. The, the story going somewhere is part of it. So where are they on their way to? Well, we have to look back a couple chapters to chapter 9, verse 51. And it says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So everything from that point on in the Gospel of Luke is all about the trek to Jerusalem, is all about what Jesus came to do, Jesus' purpose. And so this story is a part of what Jesus wants us to know in relationship to his mission as being the Messiah. So what is it that Jesus wants us to know? Well, the simple understanding of the passage, don't do anything, just sit there, can't be right. Because in other places, Jesus complains when his host isn't very hospitable. So hospitality is good, service is good. The story is more complicated and a whole lot richer than that. So context is king. The text is in response to a question that Jesus gets asked a little bit earlier in the chapter in verse 25. It says, a teacher of the law comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what does the law say? You know the answer to the question. And he answers back, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's the answer. Now go and do it and you'll live. And then 
the lawyer asks a follow-up question, but who's my neighbor? So in response to that, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan to show how we love our neighbors as ourselves, And then he throws in for free a story about what it looks like to love God. And that's what this story is about. It's an answer to the question, how do I get eternal life? And what does it look like to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and my neighbor as myself? It's about figuring out what's most important. It's about knowing what your priority is and what your priority should be. So Jesus comes to town and he stays with Martha and her sister Mary. And there's an important note here that he stays with Martha. She's the homeowner and with Mary. So Martha is older, Mary is younger. And anyone who has younger or older siblings understands the implications of birth order. So Martha owns the house and she feels responsible. And she looks at her younger sister Mary and she thinks she's completely irresponsible. And she still can't figure out why her parents cut Mary so much slack when she was growing up, but they had so many rules for Martha. I don't know, maybe I'm speaking out of my own pain here. And then, you know, later on, it does help to have kids and understand that by the time the last one comes along, you're just tired. And you know you don't really need to sterilize the pacifier, just pick it up, blow it off, and put it back in the kid's mouth. So Martha thinks Mary is irresponsible and that Mary just does whatever she wants to and doesn't care about anybody else. And Mary thinks Martha is wound up way too tight, just needs to relax. So that's important to the story. And then you've got Jesus, who always travels with an entourage and he comes to their house. And what does Martha think? She looks around and goes, it's great to have Jesus and all of his friends here, but I've got to feed these people. And what does Mary think? Mary thinks, cool, now I get to hear what all the buzz is about. So Martha starts to make preparations for lunch and Mary sits down to listen. And with both of them, I only have assumptions, charitable assumptions about both of them. So Jesus sits down, Mary sits down, and Martha's preparing for the meal. And she's getting out the tablecloths and putting the water pitchers out and doing all this meal prep stuff. But don't picture the size of your house because Mary and Martha are not living in 3,500 square feet. They're living in maybe 144 square feet, 12 by 12, something like that. So it's not like the kitchen and the formal dining room are on the other side of the house. It's right there. And it's probably a little disruptive. So people are trying to listen and there's all this banging going around as Martha's trying to get the food ready. And it reminds me of so many church meals and why I hate to combine like worship with food or a meeting with food. I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting in like some seminar at church or some worship service and the speaker is making some great point and you feel like God is at work and then it's like all of a sudden somebody got busy and 15 people get up in the middle and go out and fix food because what's most important? Lunch. It's one of the reasons why I'm so grateful for Sue and Vic Duckerman and their team. They're the people that provides brunch for us every single week. They put out a lot of food. But here's the thing, it's not about the food. Brunch here is ministry driven because Sue had a vision for people hanging around, talking, meeting new people, establishing community. And that's the priority. The food is just the medium. And now we start to see what the issue is. 
For Martha, the priority, the most important thing was the, was the food. Her care, her wanting to be hospitable, actually became a distraction. She takes her eyes off what Jesus is doing and puts them on what she's doing. And then she can't figure out why everyone else doesn't think that's important. Verse 40 says, But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by herself? Tell her to help me. I love this because essentially Martha is saying to Jesus, Jesus, don't you care what's going on here? Or Jesus, you're not paying attention to what the most important thing is. And if you take one step back, look at the contrast between Martha, who tells Jesus what he should say, and Mary, who's listening to what Jesus wants to say. There's a big difference between the two. So Jesus, I think somewhat gently, refocuses Martha. Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Martha, you're worried and upset about way too much. And Jesus talks about worry a lot in Luke. He does it because worry can distract us. It can distract us from what the most important thing is. If you're a worrier, think about how many times you've laid awake at night worrying about something, and the next morning it either isn't that big of a deal or you're so tired from being awake all night long that you can't do what it was that you needed to do anyway. So he talks a lot about worry because it's so distracting. Like in chapter 8, verse 14, he talks about the seed that falls on good soil, but it gets choked out by worries. Worry can kill the gospel in us. In chapter 12, he talks about how you know, the birds of the field and the, the flowers all are clothed and taken care of by God and how we can't add a single hour to our life by worrying. And in, verse, in chapter 21, he talks about that we have to be careful or our hearts will be weighed down by anxiety. So Martha has the best of intentions, but she's let her worry about preparing food get in the way. So essentially, this is about single-mindedness, about priorities. People need to eat, but at that moment, that wasn't the priority. The most important thing was to pay attention to Jesus. And Jesus says, Mary's chosen what's better, and it will not be taken away from her. In other words, the God stuff lasts. The stuff that we pick up from being close to Jesus will change us for forever. Listening, learning, prioritizing time spent with him, uh, surrendering our agenda to his agenda, trusting that he has the best for us in mind, having knowing God being your priority in every situation. That's the example that Jesus gives of what it looks like to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So what does this all mean for us? Well, I think one of the things that strikes me is that most of us don't spend our time choosing between good and bad. Sometimes we do. But most of the time, we spend our time choosing between good and best. Uh, do people need to be fed? Yes. Do we want our kids to excel at sports or dance or whatever? Yes. Is it important that we spend time nurturing our key relationships? Yes. Should we nurture this gift that God has given us in finance or medicine or education or truck driving or raising kids? Yes, those are all good things. 
but in every situation, they might not be the best thing. We spend our time choosing between good and best. And the best thing in every situation is choosing to love God first. The greatest choice that we can make is to love God. Why? What's the payoff? Because then everything else will fall into place. I even think about Martha's worry about providing lunch. Well, Jesus was teaching one other time and they realized that everybody was hangry and they needed to do something. And Jesus basically took it into his own hands and he provided lunch. So Jesus tends to make things happen. We have lots of responsibilities. We have lots of duties. But what this story gets at is that we should have only one priority in every situation, and that's to love God. And so what that means is that we need to know what's important. Years ago, a guy named Charles Hummel, I don't know what else he did besides this, but he wrote a great little book called Tyranny of the Urgent. And in it, one of his quotes is, your greatest danger is letting the urgent things crowd out the important. We tend to pay attention to the thing that's the loudest, not necessarily the thing that's most important. For Martha, the loudest thing was the need to get lunch on the table. That was what was urgent, but it wasn't necessarily the most important. And lots of us are tyrannized by the urgent. Our lives are not lived doing the most important things. Most of us are pulled in so many directions. And you can do anything you want to, but if you try to do everything, you won't do anything well. And that's a problem for us. We're trying to do so many things that we aren't doing any of them well. We haven't really focused on what's important. And honestly, talking about how busy you are does not make me impressed with your ability to focus or manage your time. The greatest thing that I have done in recent memory is my Lenten discipline of ruthlessly removing hurry from my life. That was the greatest thing ever because it's left space for God. It's left margin. It's left space for me to be used by God or to listen to God or to just let my blood pressure go down. If you're going to thrive as a human being, if you're going to thrive as a follower of Jesus, you have to be able to discern what the most important thing is at that given time. And truthfully, not that many things are that important. Jesus says you're worried about way too much. I've noticed that most emergencies solve themselves in less than 24 hours without really doing anything. Because most emergencies are just people who've got to be in their bonnet. The biggest danger is to overreact and to be tyrannized by the urgent. We need to remove distractions in order to focus on what's important. Some distractions are obvious. There's a great list in Galatians chapter 5. Distractions like sexual immorality or impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalness, dissensions, and things like that. Other things that are distractions are more subtle, like social media or electronic devices. I subscribed to the MLB channel this year and it might be ruining my life because I'm constantly aware that there's a ball game on that I could be watching. It's not really helping uh, with me with focus. The other night I was in a Zoom meeting and for the first time I discovered the background blur function. So instead of seeing what's behind you, you can blur that out. So it's just, wait for it, blurry. So that it causes people to focus just on you. 
And I'm like, that blur focus is what I need in life. So I can blur the background so I can get rid of the distractions and focus on the most important things. So how do you do that? Well, prayer helps to center us. Scripture helps to center us. Worship helps to center us. Exercise helps to center us. So go for a walk through the woods and pray and sing a praise song and that should help blur the background. I think another thing that we have to do in order to, to focus on what's important is to stop making excuses. The New Testament is filled with examples of excuses. I want to listen to you, Lord, but I need to get dinner on. I want to follow you, Jesus, but my folks are old and I need to take care of them. I want to know you, Lord, but my schedule is really busy this week. We need to stop making excuses. And some of us have real struggles, like maybe you've been diagnosed with ADHD. But then you need to know that there is a difference between an excuse and an explanation. If you've been diagnosed with ADHD, it's harder for you to focus. But don't use that as an excuse to not focus. I have to work harder to focus because I have ADHD. That's an explanation. I can't focus because I have ADHD. That's an excuse. And we need to quit making excuses and just decide that we're gonna follow Jesus and make him the priority. And if you don't wanna follow Jesus, just be honest. We had a family that used to come to our church very, very faithfully, and if you talked to them, they were pretty much Buddhists. They were like, I'm really not down with this Jesus thing, but we love the vibe of the place and love to hang out. And I thought that was great, because you never know how things are gonna change in people's lives. So we need to just quit making excuses. And then, I think some of us really have to deal with our anxiety. We really have to deal with our worry. Because as Jesus gave in so many examples in Luke, worry will suck the life out of you. So pray, get counseling, practice breathing prayers, meditate on scripture, take the meds. Anything that you need to do to raise the bottom so that you are not consumed by worry and anxiety. And then I think it's important to figure out how to prioritize loving God in your key relationships. If you ever ask me to mentor you, we're gonna spend a lot of time talking about your key relationships because that's where your relationship to God plays out. So what does it mean to love God and raise kids? Well, if there's only one phrase that your kids would remember you saying, what would you want it to be? I love you, or keep your eye on the ball. And which do you think your kid is going to remember? What does it mean to love God and be a good spouse? I'm still working on this. Because I love God, I wanna love and honor Megan well. What does that look like? Well, some evenings it might be sitting and listening. I mean really listening, not just saying uh-huh at what seems to be appropriate intervals. What does it mean to love God and run a company or run a department or run a classroom? And it's gonna look differently for everyone, but just asking the question opens you up to the movement of the Holy Spirit and will change who you are and how you relate to people. And again, this doesn't mean don't serve, don't do stuff. I love this quote that I ran across. A danger lies in being so busy working in the kingdom that we miss intimacy with the king. 
This neither minimizes our responsibility nor negates our mission. It simply orders our priority and guards us from distraction, even from good Christian things. We still need to be about stuff, serving, loving, caring, being hospitable, but we have to keep things in balance. Years ago, I had a young associate, and I was sort of training him up, trying to mentor him, and he had very few boundaries. He was spread way, way thin. And so I said, okay, you've got to learn to say no. You've got to figure out what the most important thing for you to do is, and then don't be deterred from that, because people will always ask you to do more. And so he, he listened, and he came back, and we were sitting in my office a couple weeks ago, and I was like, hey, um, I need you to do this thing, this ministry-related thing. And this dear boy looked at me earnestly and said, I really listened to what you said, so I'm going to have to say no. I can't make that a priority right now. And it was all I could do to not bust out laughing. And I thought, oh, dear boy. This is not how this works. I'm teaching you to say no to other things so that when I have a job for you, you can say yes to that. You don't get to choose to say no to me. So we had a lovely conversation about that. But, so the story presents us with the opportunity to ask, am I choosing the right things? Am I single-mindedly pursuing God in every aspect of my life? And this sets us up for the rest of our study, for the rest of the summer, which is gonna be on the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' teaching about what it's like to live in the kingdom. And we're gonna discover that it isn't hypothetical and it isn't filled with hyperbole. It's really designed to help us follow the Jesus way. So fasten your seatbelts. And let me ask you three questions. Who do you identify with more, Martha or Mary? What looks like the tyranny of the urgent in your life? And number three, what is one step you can take to help loving God be the priority of your life? Hi, thanks for watching. The people of Harbor Covenant Church really want you to know the love that God has for you, want to grow with you in faith, and want to serve alongside you, not only to help others do the same, but also to make our families and our communities better. If that sounds like something that you can get on board with, then like, follow, and drop us a comment in the video. Watch some more videos on our channel or come visit us on Sunday. You can find out more about Harbor Covenant Church at harborcove.church.